we begin a new ministry launch Sunday, as you know. If you can believe it, there are 10 weeks till Advent. So what we're going to do here from the pulpit is divide it into two mini-series, a six-part series followed by a four-part series, and then we will be in the four-part series known as Advent. I have been feeling lately in my spirit um, discouraged. I feel that the church has been destabilized. I know from talking to many people on the ground that people are feeling discouraged. This is really hard. Some of us are feeling exhausted. Indeed, some of us are feeling that this is a spiritual battle of titanic proportions. It's for that reason that as I was praying about this six-part series and asking the Lord what I might do, that I kept coming back to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's final note of exhortation to the believers in Ephesus to put on the full armor of God. This will break down into a six-part series. I'm going to kind of do a setup message today. So, but I'd like to just begin by reading the full passage, and I invite you to read through the book of Ephesians every single week, and in particular, read through this Armor of God passage here every single day, and maybe commit it to memory as well, and envision yourself as one girl at Douglas College I knew. Every morning she would get up, and she would put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, and the like, and imaginatively go through that. I challenge you to not only read Ephesians in this passage, but maybe to imagine yourself putting on the full armor of God. Beloved, listen to God's word here. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, I'm going to read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beloved of God, according to Scripture and in the text before us today, there is an unseen realm. Beyond the usual reaches of our eyes, beyond our usual experiences of this material world, there is another world, another realm, another reality just behind the curtain. We are not alone. 
In John 1, 51, Jesus tells Nicodemus, who has just been wowed by Jesus, that he will see greater things than these. In fact, he tells Nicodemus that he will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, Jesus himself. In 2 Corinthians 12 and 2, Paul says he once knew a man who 14 years earlier had been caught up in the third heaven. And in that place, he heard inexpressible things that he was not permitted to utter. We are not alone. According to Scripture, there is an unseen realm. And besides merely existing, it is, for one thing, beautiful. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah reports that he was given a glimpse into this unseen realm. When King Uzziah died, he saw there in that unseen realm the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne, and then above him were seraphs, majestic, angelic creatures, each with six wings. With two they were flying, with two they were covering their feet, and with two they were covering their eyes. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. In Ezekiel 1, the prophet Ezekiel is among the exiles by the Kebar River when the heavens are opened and he sees a vision of God. And what does he see in the unseen realm? An immense cloud filled with light engulfs him and he's surrounded by brilliant light. And at the center of what looks like fire, glowing metal, he sees four creatures with the appearance of men, but who each have four wings. They are men-like, and yet they're so much more than men. They're spectacularly beautiful, heavenly creatures just beyond a curtain. On November 10, 2008, a Duke University-trained man of science who spent 15 years on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, the experienced and highly celebrated neurosurgeon, Dr. Eben Alexander, at the age of 54, Dr. Alexander was struck by a rare illness, and a deadly one. He lapsed into a coma that lasted seven days. Consciousness, Dr. Alexander had previously believed, was purely located in the material brain. When in a coma, Dr. Alexander was declared completely brain dead, gone. His neocortex lost all functioning completely. He was hooked up to devices scanning his brain activity. The brain activity had completely ceased. His heart was kept pumping by machines. His lungs were kept pumping by machines but his brain was completely dead. They considered pulling the plug, but waited. During these seven days, Dr. Alexander claims that he was elsewhere. In a world too fantastic to describe, too beautiful, too other, he had what others have described and coined an NDE, a near-death experience. And what did it teach this materialistic man of science? I quote him, as a practicing neurosurgeon with decades of research and hands-on working in the operating room behind me, I was in a better than average position to judge not only the reality, but also the implications of what happened to me. Those implications are tremendous beyond description. 
my experience showed me that the death of the body and the brain are not the end of consciousness. That human experience continues beyond the grave. More important, it continues under the gaze of a God who loves and cares for each one of us. The place I went is real. Real in a way that makes the life we're living here and now completely dreamlike by comparison. Even Alexander, folks, is but one of a vast company of people who have said they have experienced something similar, a window into this unseen realm. Beloved, according to Scripture, there is an unseen realm. And besides existing, it is beautiful. And besides beautiful, it is also populated with multitudes upon multitudes, not just some, but multitudes of exalted heavenly beings, beings compared to which we are not their equal. Here's how Calvin Theological Seminary's president of 38 years, Louis Burkhoff, beginning his tenure in 1906, a man of prodigious learning, summarizes this fascinating reality of the unseen realm in his incredibly sweeping and erudite systematic theology. He says this, 18th century rationalism boldly denied the existence of angels and explained what the Bible teaches about them as species of accommodation. And yet, while it is evident that philosophy can never prove nor disprove the existence of angels, from philosophy we must turn to Scripture, which makes no deliberate attempt to prove the existence of angels, but assumes their reality throughout. And in its historical books, repeatedly shows us the angels in action. No one who bows before the authority of the Word of God can doubt the existence of angels. Burkhoff then goes on to clarify how Scripture teaches us that these angels are spiritual beings who are supra-physical. They're beyond just mere matter as we know it. How they do not marry. They can be present in great numbers in very limited space. They have intelligence, will, personality. And here's a fascinating one. They are not born, but they are made, made by God as singular individual one-offs, which means, says Burkhoff, that quote, think about this, their full number was created in the beginning. There has been no increase in their ranks since the beginning. He also notes that they are organized into various hierarchical groupings, each group with their own purpose or function. So, for example, as you look at the scriptures, you'll see that there are angels called cherubim, as those stationed at the gates of Eden in Genesis 3. And these cherubim are warriors who guard the holiness of God. Some angels, apparently, are warriors. Seraphim as those seen by Isaiah in Isaiah 6, are a kind of angelic nobility class stationed around the throne room of God as servants and messengers and singers of God's praises. Then Scripture also mentions, as in our text today, principalities and powers, rulers and authorities, which point to various ranks and dignities among the angels, says Burkhoff. The reality of a hierarchical structure of sorts is underlined by the only two named angels in the entire corpus of Scripture. Do you know them? 
the angel Michael, and the angel Gabriel. Gabriel is thought to be one of only a select number of angels to surround the innermost circle of the throne of God. As a messenger, he is the one who is sent to Mary and Joseph to announce the coming of Jesus, a personal angel. Michael is uniquely called an archangel by Jude and is portrayed as the chief warrior of Yahweh. In Revelation 12, it is Michael and his platoon of angels who is said to throw that ancient serpent, the devil, down and out of heaven to earth. Beloved of God, again, according to Scripture, there is an unseen realm. And besides merely existing, it is beautiful, it is populated, and also, we should know, the activity between that unseen sphere and this seen sphere is fluid. There is movement between there and here. And sometimes that movement is very mysterious and also very tangible, physical, material. What is ordinarily unseen can, when God so desires, become seen, visible. For example, in Genesis 18, on an ordinary day, in the hot sun, somewhere in the Mediterranean, three figures in the appearance of men kick up sand and appear to Father Abraham. These men have come from the unseen realm, and they can eat, speak, and they deliver a message for Abraham and his wife that comes directly, they say, from God. In Genesis 32, as Jacob is seeking to cross a river, a man stops him and begins to wrestle with him. It turns out that the man is not a man at all, but somehow a direct representative of God himself in human form. Apparently, humans can wrestle with heavenly beings in human form, and they can wound us as Jacob's hip bone is touched and put out of socket. In Joshua 5, the great warrior Joshua comes face to face with a man with a drawn sword in his hand. When Joshua asks this man whether he is for us or his enemies, the man says that he is for neither because he has come as, quote, the commander of the army of the Lord. Is this Michael? We don't know. What we do know is that Joshua, who fears no man or no thing, falls down in abject humility and reverence, the awe of encountering an angel. The author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us Christians to not give up entertaining strangers, for by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. When I was eight or nine years old, I had a paper route that I split with my brother Greg. He would go the one direction, I would go the other, and we would deliver our papers separately so that we could be more efficient. It was wintertime, it was dark, and it was in the mid-80s, I believe. It was the same time that Clifford Olson was out and about abducting children in a white van. My mother had warned us about Clifford Olson because he had grabbed some kids already and described that there was a white van without windows, and if you see one, don't get anywhere near it. I was on a very dark-lit street beside a row of bushes when a white van pulled up on the road and when it saw me, slowed down to a crawl, which, of course, made my skin crawl. I was terrified, and I said, Lord, help me. 
from out of the bushes jumped an older-looking gentleman who walked alongside me and then passed me. The van left. I looked back to see where this man was and could not find him. I have no idea what that was. I have always wondered what it was. Was it an angel? I have no reason to believe it wasn't an angel. Truth is, beloved of God, there is an unseen realm. It is beautiful. It is populated. It is mysterious. It can become tangible. And also now, sadly, frighteningly, and to the point of our text, it is or can be dark, evil, demonic. Scripture does not tell us the whole story, to be sure, but it does give us this. From among all the good and glorious angels God made, the multitudes of them, some of them, out of their own free will, rebelled against God in the same way that humans did, and set themselves against God as God's enemies. They used their free will to rebel. The devil in Scripture, also called Satan, or the serpent, or the dragon, or the prince of this world, interesting title, yeah? appears to have been in the organization of angels at the beginning and in terms of dignity, close to or on par with the archangel Michael himself, the warrior. As a result, he too now stands as chief, powerfully, at the head of a troop of fallen angels, a demonic horde who do his bidding. And the devil's goal now, beloved, as well as those he commands, what Paul refers to in our text as the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, is to ruin. To ruin, spoil all that God loves, which means us humans, God's good world, God's reputation, and in a concentrated way, Christ's church. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, is entirely consistent on this point. The reason humans are dead before Christ in their transgressions, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, is because besides our own flesh, which wars against our soul, we too, Paul says, quote, followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The reason we are told not to let the sun go down on our anger, according to Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, is because to do that is to give the devil, who is looking for our ruin, to give the devil a foothold. Revelation 12 says the prime goal of the devil is to intimidate and destroy, if that were possible, those who follow Jesus and obey his commandments. And what, of all of, what all of this means for us as Christ's followers, sisters and brothers in Christ, and as Paul is at pains to communicate to the Ephesian believers as a final note and exhortation in his letter to them before signing off, is this. We are at war. And we must know this. Accept it and respond accordingly. I know some Christians hate to think this way, and they despise military associations and never want to sing onward Christian soldiers even. 
And sometimes, given the history of the Crusades and a militant spirit among Christians, I totally understand why they hate these military associations. And yet, this is scriptural. And for good reason. So, beloved, please hear it and take it seriously as a first order of business as we enter into this new series. Notwithstanding the Enlightenment, which told us that there is nothing in this world beyond what science could discover, notwithstanding the hubristic rationalism that has led us enchanted creatures of God to be disenchanted from all that sparkles and shines behind the scenes in this universe, notwithstanding those that say that our obsession with fantastic movies that imagine fabulous beings in unseen realms have nothing to do with a natural knowledge in our guts that this is the truth, notwithstanding all of these things, according to Scripture, there is more going on behind the scenes in this world and in our lives in the unseen realms. And part of what is going on is that we are at war with fallen powers and principalities, evil forces, in heavenly realms. Let me say it slowly. We are at war. And now let me parse. We are at war first off, according to Paul in our text, with an enemy that wants to ruin us and everything that Christ has accomplished. Instead of allowing us to stand as Christ's church, this enemy would will that we fall as individual Christians, and as a collective. Let that sink in. As former pastor of All Saints Church London, now with the Lord, John Stott has written, is God's plan to create a new society? Then the powers and principalities of evil, the fallen angels, will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus, broken down the walls dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. The Belgic Confession, one of the forms of unity in the Christian Reformed Church, puts it this way. The devils and evil spirits are so depraved that they are enemies of God and every good thing to the utmost of their power, as murderers watching to ruin the church and every member thereof, and by their wicked stratagems to destroy all. <laughs> we are at war, friends, first of all, with an enemy that seeks our ruin. But also, we are at war, secondly, with an enemy, we must know, who is far more powerful than we are. Martin Luther, who engaged in spiritual combat with the devil 500 years ago on more than one occasion in his struggle to reform the demoralized church, captured this reality so well in his powerful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In that hymn, as we will sing later, Martin Luther attests to the fact that, quote, our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, confide our striving would be losing? A friend of mine whose name is Afshin and is now a Christian was once a militant Muslim. 
on a trip where he went, as was his custom in those days, to convert infidels to Islam or kill them to the glory of Allah. He got stopped at the border because he was carrying false passports and thrown into jail. After a week of being in jail and becoming rather impatient that he was still there, he began, as he believed was possible, to summon a jinn, which is an angelic being in the unseen realm to come and help him. And he told me, and this was first-hand account that he told me, that he had summoned a jinn, a very, very powerful one, a very, very powerful angel, who then turned on him and began to choke him and strangle him. And he almost lost his life. There is far more to Afshin's story, but the point is, friends, here, we might think we might dabble in the underworld and the occult and try to manipulate it or play voodoo with it or treat it as some kind of purring kitten for our purposes, but, says Scripture, it is a pack of hyenas and we are not its equal. We treat it lightly to our peril. And for another reason, too, do we treat it lightly to our peril? Because not only are the demonic powers out to ruin us and more powerful than us, but they will also, as that show Survivor puts it, the reality show, they will outwit, outplay, and outlast us every single time. Now the serpent was more cunning than all of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. More cunning we are not unaware of the devil's schemes, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 and 11. Be alert and of sober mind, says Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, because your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I grant you, we don't tend to really believe this nowadays with our enlightened worldview. A devil with machinations prowling around to get us? Come on. But we are the outliers in Christian history, folks. We are the outliers when it comes to our doubt about this. As reported by John Stott, in 1655, the Puritan minister William Gurnall, pastor of the Church of Christ at Leavenholm in Suffolk, published his treatise called the Christian in complete armor, on the text that we're going to be looking at over the next while. Its elaborate subtitle, which one needs to draw a deep breath, is this. And just listen to this for a moment, and then we can talk later about my grand eloquence. Here's the subtitle. The saints war against the devil, wherein a discovery is made of the grand enemy of God and his people. In his policies, power, seat of his empire, wickedness, and chief designs he hath against the saints. A magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor, and taught the use of his weapon together with the happy issue of the whole war. In his dedication of the book to his parishioners, Rav Gurnall modestly refers to himself as their poor and unworthy minister, and to his treatise as but a mite and a little present to them. Yet, Stott continues, in my eighth edition of 1821, this might runs to three volumes, 261 chapters, and 1,472 pages, although it is an exposition of only 11 verses. Our predecessors in the faith took the devil and his work in this world with drop-dead seriousness 
And they did because scripture teaches us that evil powers are working in the unseen realms in human history in cunning ways to ruin us in God's good world. They are at work. And by the way, some believe that in all of human history, the demonic has had the greatest success in the 20th century. And part of the reason is because we don't believe in the devil anymore. we become way too smart for him and for his minions. So he's been able to work in the undercurrents of our society. 20th century. More demonic than any other? Well, I see what they mean. Because, you know, what else but the totally demonic possessed and was giving fire and fuel to the great culture of death? First the death of God, followed by death by genocide and by abortion. That was the 20th century and continues into the 21st. As one has written, Auschwitz, Hiroshima, the Gulag, Ukraine, Armenia, Rwanda, the killing fields of Pol Pot's Cambodia, Mayo's cultural revolution, Sudan, and then, of course, a third of all American children, just to name one, being killed by abortion today. Many people today simply do not know about the incredible carnage, millions upon millions upon millions that have been murdered. But no one actually experienced, who actually experienced any of these atrocities can believe that human nature alone was responsible for such unlimited and deliberate malice. One chilling and telling sign that these evils came not from finite realms of the world and the flesh, but from the realm of the devil is the astonishing total absence in every case of mass genocide, at least, of anything like remorse in the perpetrators of these colossal evils. The demon, having done his work through his human instruments, then departs and the killer feels no guilt, as if he had not been there, as if the deed had been done by someone else, for this is precisely what happened. It is demonic possession to the core. Beloved, there is an unseen realm. It is beautiful. It is populated. It is mysterious. It can be tangible, and it can be dark. And those dark parts are active in this world, sometimes possessing communities, sometimes individuals, but always with the mission to distort, deceive, and destroy. Jesus, when he came to earth, took the demonic with drop-dead seriousness and engaged it in constant battle before any other battle, in fact, any other ministry activity. Jesus goes out into the desert to engage in battle with the devil. In the text before us today, Paul tells us that as Jesus' followers, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And please hear what this means now in closing. This means two things. First, it means that our enemy is not things like the adherence of false religions, our enemy is not the false religions themselves. Our enemy is not liberals or conservatives. Our enemy is not people on the right or the left. Our enemy is not even people on the radical right or the radical left. It's not a president or a prime minister that we might disdain. Our enemy is not abortionists 
or racists, corrupt politicians or postmodern academics. Our enemy is not drug lords or death-dealing drug makers. Our enemy is not our cranky spouses or cantankerous bosses. Our enemy church is not gossipy Christians who keep slandering us or broken Christians who have broken us. Our enemy is not even Christian leaders, wolves in sheep's clothing, who treat the Bible as a fairy tale and the resurrection of Jesus as its chief fantasy or who treat its moral vision lightly, who treat bitter as sweet and sweet as bitter. No, but our enemy is those unseen powers and principalities headed by the devil who masks raids as an angel of light. That is our enemy. And thus, we do not go after flesh and blood things in our world to destroy them, but we seek to destroy and do battle with what's behind them, what's ruining them themselves the operations of the flesh, as well as the malevolent, unseen forces of evil. And what this means, of course, secondly, is that the tools we will need for this battle are spiritual tools. We do not, as Christians, take up in our daily lives conventional weapons of war. We do not wield a sword. We do not carry guns. We do not respond to evil with evil. We do not slander those who have slandered us. We do not twist the truth to make others look worse and ourselves better. We do not backstab or backbite. We don't roll our eyes to induce shame. We don't play emotional intimacy games. We don't shun. We don't run. We don't give the silent treatment. We don't hold a grudge and withhold forgiveness as a way to punish. We do not use conventional weapons in our battle in this world, because the battle we are engaged in is spiritual, against a spiritual enemy, and thus we need spiritual weapons of war. Specifically, says Paul, we need the armor of God. It is God's own armor that God puts on in the Old Testament. It's his own armor. Be strong in the Lord, Paul says in our text, and in his mighty power. This isn't something we can give ourselves. It's something that God in his grace gives us as we turn to him. They're spiritual weapons, truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, the gospel of peace, the word of God, and prayer. We'll be looking at each of these in some depth over the next five weeks. And again, if you say, why this series now? Well, it's because, beloved, I believe that we as a church are presently quite vulnerable. I'm worried. I'm worried. I think we're easy prey right now. We're separated. Our habits are being changed. We're not singing together. I think we're super vulnerable. I know I am. And so we need to suit up. May God help us, may, and may he enlighten us by his Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.